This episode is a repost from a podcast that appeared on the Center for Baptist Renewal, and it's Matthew Emerson and I talking through Gregory of Nazianzus' theological orations. So at CBR last year, we did a Theology Classics reading challenge, and this was one of the books on there. I've also posted one before with Luke Stamps when we talked through Athanasius's On the Incarnation. So I hope you'll enjoy this summary and reflection on Gregory's theological orations. We are brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. And now, Matthew Emerson and I talk about Gregory's orations. But first, no big deal. In today's show, we're going to talk about our third book in the 2021 Reading Challenge, which is Gregory of Nazianzus' Five Theological Orations, uh, the St. Vladimir's Press popular patristic series is called On God and Christ. That's the version that they have put out, and of course, you can access it in a couple of other different ways as well. But these are his uh, five of his theological orations. There are more than five of them. These five are his most famous, and they discuss uh, his doctrine of the Trinity and Christology, and so that's what we'll be talking about today. So before we jump in uh, to the text, Brandon, you want to tell us a little bit about G. Nas and uh, his yeah. life and ministry? Yeah, I actually have my, uh, for those on YouTube, my uh, Cap four Cappadocians mug for today, which I keep at the office anyway, but it was the perfect timing for that. So, Basil, Basil and the Caps. Yeah, Basil and the Caps, or the Cap Daddies, as, as you've said before. Uh, Athanasius and, and the, the Cap, cap Daddies. Mama. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the Cap Daddies with the Cap Mama, that's right. Um, Mama so, Caps. It's going to get weird if we don't just move on. So, um, uh, so uh, yeah, so you've got Gregory of Nazianzus is one of the, uh, usually grouped with the three Cappadocians or the four, depending on uh, who you are. And uh, Gregory is considered the most popular of the three, the most well-known, and perhaps maybe the most prolific of the group of Cappadocians. And, uh, you know, after his life was was considered Gregory the theologian because of how much theological work he did. So like you said, uh, the five theological orations are uh, usually collected uh, in his orations. Uh, and these are numbers 27 through 31. And you've got all kinds of others. And so these five theological orations are sort of uh, the pinnacle in some sense of his work, uh, really deep Trinitarian theology. And what's interesting about him, similar to a lot of others like uh, Calvin, and Luther and others in church history where they didn't set out to be clergymen or pastors per se, but they felt as though they had no choice, but God called them to do that. So Gregory goes off to school uh, and studies basically um, how to write poetry and do all kinds of other things. He's, he's sort of an artsy uh, type of guy, uh, meets Basil there. He's an, and he's, they an become, he's an Enneagram type four. Yeah. There you go. So for you uh, Enneagram people, uh, Matt and I are both eights, which is why our trolling is so uh, perfect for each other. Right. Um, Gregory just, was probably, I bet have, he was really an eight at the end of the day. Right. We have to offend a certain population every podcast. So it's our Enneagram people that are anti-Enneagram people today. Bringing up the Enneagram. I'm, I'm really, we're really trying to troll Joe Carter with that. Honestly. Yeah. And our friend Matt Arbo, who uh, we occasionally drop that on group text as well. Uh, So anyway, all that to say, just a little background with him, you know, he becomes a a theologian, uh, not really his first choice. But ultimately, what you see is, you know, we've got his theological orations here, but he writes theological poetry and all kinds of other things. And it's just really well trained in rhetoric 
and in writing. And you can tell uh, by the way that he actually uh, writes and the way that his works uh, work out. And these five theological orations, uh, most people consider them to have been preached to a pretty hostile crowd. Uh, there's stories about people throwing rocks at him uh, as he preached and uh, having to have even an entourage to uh, protect him at times. Uh, I was reading uh, something the other day on Gregory and the person, actually, it may have been an introduction to this to this SVS press. Now that I think about it, uh, said that you know Augustine was the type that uh, you knew who Augustine was, Augustine was, but you always wanted to get to know him a little more. Like you wish you could ask a few more questions after confessions. Whereas Gregory, you're like, hey man, can you stop talking about? Uh, can you stop being so honest about your life? He's so autobiographical, so he doesn't get that credit like Augustine does because he didn't write his own confessions. But he is a fascinating guy to read. Yeah, good. And so in terms of the orations in oration 27 uh gregory begins with uh the the character of the theologian so what's required of someone in order to do theology um and then subsequently he, he discusses that as well in oration 28 but in, in 28 and following we sort of go subsequently from what is required of a theologian and that generally is um character uh, godliness and an understanding of the ineffability of God, right? So we have to start here where theology is something pursued by godly people. And if you're not godly, then you can't do it. And then also you have to understand that God is ultimately ineffable. That is, we can't describe him in a one-to-one -one fashion. We're always, we're always being analogous in our use of language, this sort of thing, when we describe who God is. Not that he hasn't revealed himself, not that we can't know true things about him, but that he's God and we're not. And our language has to reflect that. So he starts there. He moves into, uh, again, more of this um, discussion of analogous language. Uh, who is God? One God, three persons, defense of uh, God the Son and his full divinity. And then finally, we end with uh, a discussion of the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's pretty much a broad strokes kind of look at what we're talking about. And so there are a number of different things that we can discuss here about any of those orations. We can learn a lot from Gregory about hermeneutics, about exegesis, about theology, uh, but I want to start with where Gregory starts, which is actually with, uh, with holiness. Yeah. I, I was thinking this morning as I was uh, driving to work, because I knew this was coming up today, and um, I was thinking about this, and there, there's like a big, <clears throat> there's a big push right now towards retrieval of patristic categories related to the doctrine of god mm -hmm. there's a big push towards uh, retrieval of fourth century hermeneutics in relation to articulating the doctrine of god just to be really honest and this is true in my own life as well what i don't see a lot is the the same push for retrieving the moral context in which we can retrieve um those categories for god hermeneutics uh, in terms of understanding the scriptures and what they say about God. For Gregory, there's a, there's a moral qualification to doing theology. Mm -hmm. And you don't really hear about that a lot these days. I think we, we talk about uh, qualifications for a pastorate. So we talk about first Timothy three, we talk about being above reproach. Um, and then we talk about separately what it means to do theology but you don't see many theology textbooks starting off with, Hey, if you're going to talk about God, you have to approach God. Well, which means being a follower of Jesus and living a holy life. So, you know, I, what do you think about that? You think we think we need to retrieve that too. Are we missing something? 
Am, am I missing something, not hearing people say that who are? What do you think? No, man, I'm all about uh, just get as famous as you can, as quickly as you can, and just right. build. No, I mean, uh, the thing that's interesting, too, about the, about, you know, Gregory does this, Cyril of Alexandria does this, Athanasius does this. Part of their moral qualification is the way that they talk about um, heretics and those who are false teachers, because they say it's not only, mm -hmm. uh, you know, are you, well, Gregory's not married, but are you faithful to your wife? Are you honest? Whatever. Are you humble? But part right. of that humility is rooted in, uh, do you take the scripture seriously? Do you follow their both uh, their theology and their moral uh, codes? And this is the issue that a lot of the uh, heretics run into is that, you know, Gregory says uh, something in uh, Oration 27 about we shouldn't be less reverent than the demons, for example. Mm. And, and one of those is that we need to be willing to uh, submit ourselves to, to God's word and to, as you said, the ineffability of God, to be humble to say, we, we, we can only say so much. Mm. And the heretics are often ac accused of talking too much. Now that could just sound like theological debate, but it's bigger than that, right? Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, if you have the spirit of God, then you can understand who God is and you're not looking for human reason or human wisdom to understand these things. And we can get into analogy and all kinds of other things, but that's the big, that's the big picture there, right? Is that part of being a good uh, theologian, being a good pastor is the humility to submit yourself to God and his word and uh, the teachings that are there. Yeah, that's right. So just to give you an idea of what, what we're referring to in, in Oration 27, this is just one example. Uh, Oration 27, section 3, Gregory says this, discussion of theology is not for everyone. I tell you, not for everyone. It is no such inexpensive or effortless pursuit. Nor, I would add, is it for every occasion or every audience. Neither are all its aspects open to inquiry. It must be reserved for certain occasions, certain audiences, and certain limits must be observed. It is not for all people, but only for those who have been tested and have found a sound footing in study, and more importantly, have undergone, or at the very least, are undergoing purification of body and soul. For one who is not pure to lay hold of pure things is dangerous, just as it is for weak eyes to look at the sun's brightness. And right? so there's this moral qualification. People get really offended by people with academic positions today, and there's this like, anti-elitism going on in, in in certain sectors i just think it's interesting that gregory starts off by alluding to basically leviticus right um it's dangerous for impure people to touch pure things namely discussion of who god is what else is there that's pure besides that it's not a it's not elitist to put boundaries on who can discuss and who can teach theology it's actually reverent but the the boundary isn't the boundary isn't a degree it's the degree to which you're conformed into the image of christ mm -hmm. so i think that's important you know he goes on to say what's the right time well basically he says when you're not distracted yeah uh, and then who should listen he says, those for whom it's a serious undertaking, not just another subject like any other entertaining small talk after the races, the theater, songs, food, or sex. For there are people who count chatter on theology and clever deployment of arguments as one of their amusements. In other words, theology is not just another subject. We're approaching God himself. 
with our minds and we should take that with utter seriousness. Um, finally, he says, what aspects, and here's, here's where we kind of get into the ineffability question. This is how he transitions here. Uh, what aspects of theology should be investigated and to what limits? Only aspects within our grasp and only to the limit of the experience and capacity of our audience. And so let's, let's talk about this idea of ineffability. Um, what, is, what does Gregory mean by ineffability? And do we talk about that anymore? And why is it important? Yeah, I mean, ineffability, generally speaking, is saying you recognize the creator-creature distinction. You recognize that there is a very clear distinction between us and who God is. And so therefore, everything that we know about God is only what he's revealed. And even then we have to be careful how much we say, you know, how much we lean into the mystery of who God is. So a lot of the, you know, Gregory will do this and some of the other fathers as well. will talk about how, you know, God's revelation is like this bright light that just barely breaks through the clouds and we can just see little bits of it, but we can't see all of it, you know, and it goes back to Exodus 33 and 34, where God tells Moses, you can't look at me and live. And, uh, you know, Moses gets a, 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 the closest look that anybody gets until the incarnation to, to God's face, if you will. And uh, literally has to go hide in a tent for a week because his face is glowing, right? Like God, God, if he were to see God with his own eyes, he would literally melt in place. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the undergirding, right? Is that yes, God has revealed himself, but there's only so much we can say based on how he's revealed himself. And then the, the secret things belong to God you know, yeah. the invisible things uh, versus the visible things, that kind of stuff. And so the ineffability is not, we can't know God in any genuine or meaningful sense, but rather we can only know him so much as creatures, as those looking through a mirror dimly, as it were. Yeah. What he's doing is he's saying, listen, here's all the ways that the Bible describes God. And uh, he'll quote things like God uh, fills heaven and earth, right? So this would be in section eight. He fills heaven and earth. Okay, well, in, in your mind, you might think that means that God somehow materially occupies space, mm -hmm. which would entail some sort of body, that he has some sort of body, whatever, whatever that kind of body is. But he works through the logic of that and says, that's impossible. God doesn't have a body. God's not material. He's immaterial. And so what he's doing is he's saying, listen, when we read scripture and we see statements like he fills heaven and earth or like God has a nose. We can't take that as a one to one correlation to reality. It's mm -hmm. accurately describing who God is, but it's by way of analogy. Okay, so this is where we get this kind of uh, doctrine of analogy that the, the, or the of analogical language. So there's three kinds of language and Aquinas famously later on, obviously in church history famously works through these three options. You can have uh, univocal language. And this is the problem that Gregory is pointing out. People can use language univocally where they, where, where whatever term you use has a one-to-one -one correspondence with what you're describing. Okay. And so in that, in that instance, if scripture was univocal in its language about God in these instances where it's, uh, using stuff like God's nose or, or um, you God's know, arm, God's something. arm, his, yeah. he extends his right arm to save uh, Moses seeing the back of God, mm -hmm. right? If scripture was speaking univocally there, it would mean that God literally has a nose, a back, a right arm, which would 
actually directly contradict other passages of the scripture that say, you know, for instance, God is a spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so on the one hand, scripture itself testifies to the fact that it's not univocal. So we can compare scripture with scripture in that regard and say, this is not univocal. On the other hand, um, scripture is not equivocal either. That is, it's not saying one thing and meaning something entirely different. And so the an example there would be just when scripture says something like, God is good, equivocal use of language would be that, well, actually what the author meant there was God is evil or, mm. or like God likes potatoes or even you know, <laughs> some, something that has nothing to do with the actual statement. Okay, so scripture is neither univocal in its descriptions of God that are clearly metaphorical, we'll put it that way, that anthropomorphic language. It, it's, it's, not, it's not univocal, but it's also not equivocal. It's not telling us something. It's not telling us nothing. It's accurately describing reality. It's analogous. So there's an analogous, there's an analogy to be made um, with whatever it means for God to, um, to have a long nose. There's something true being communicated by that, even if it doesn't mean that God actually has a long nose. Mm-hmm. And so this is what this is where Gregory gets into this uh, conversation about how Scripture uses language. So that, I mean, I think first of all, that's important to just lay out because a lot of people miss that when we talk about the doctrine of God. Yeah, we 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 think okay, well we have to take every statement in scripture about God as a one-to-one description of reality. Well, that gets you into problems really fast when you start using these anthropomorphic passages to map onto a one-to-one reality in God. I think that's really important in current conversations about the doctrine of God. Yeah, I mean, Gregory is clearly responding, as many others are, when they're talking about this analogous language, too. Uh, I mean, he's, he's clearly writing uh, against eunomians here. You've got Arianism in the background, obviously, and versions of it, who are taking sun language, literally, to the point of he must have been created. The sun must have been created because he's a sun and all suns are created. Or mm. he must have less authority or power because sons have less authority and power, et cetera. So that, that's all in the backdrop of this too, right, is that you've got to really have this. And he gets into this when he gets into the sun, oration on the sun, but he, he wants to make sure that this is a clear sort of, um, I guess you'd call it a, a, an interpretive strategy, for lack of a better word, of saying when you see this in scripture, this is what's happening here. And make sure that you're not saying too much or too little based right. on that. Yeah, so there's a there's a way to say too much. Yeah, with an particularly too much. That's the biggest problem is is the, the heretics say too much. Yeah, and so just to be really clear, neither Gregory nor we are saying that scripture that scripture doesn't speak truthfully about who God is. It does. Yeah. When we use meta with the language of metaphor, we're not saying that the Bible isn't describing reality accurately, but it's using metaphorical language to describe who God is, and so and you know so all the anthropomorphic terms we've talked about, God riding on clouds, sitting on a throne. I mean, that's, that's all anthropomorphic. God would have to have a body in order to sit on a throne. He doesn't have a yeah. body like man. That's not communicating too much, which would be that he has a body and he's sitting down. It's also not communicating too little. That is, it's not saying nothing. It's yeah. saying that he's in authority. He rules over all things, right? So it's still teaching something true. And it's inerrant in the way it's teaching it, just to throw that out there to make sure we're clear on where we stand on the Bible. But it's doing so with specific 
uh, in, in a specific use of language. We're creatures. God is creator. We are finite. He's infinite. We're not omniscient. He is, right? So when we talk about those kinds of things, we're not omnipresent. He is. When we talk about those kinds of things, we have to describe them in ways that are analogous and not one-to-one. We can't, we can't actually describe God in a one-to-one fashion. It's impossible. We can describe him truthfully. We can describe him in ways that accord with how he's revealed himself to us, mm-hmm. but he's totally other than us. He's ineffable. And so we have to be careful in our use of language. Which is why the incarnation is so uh, beautiful, powerful, and mysterious is, is Jesus can say, if you see me, you've seen the father. Yeah. You know, it, it's on the one hand, you still haven't seen the divine nature per se, but you do have a more tangible, uh, you know, creaturely earthy way to say, oh, I'm actually am looking at and can describe univocally in some sense who God is in the person and body of Jesus. Yep, that's right. So 29, uh, one of the things to pick up on for sure, if you're reading this in 29 is particularly in 29, uh, 17 to 18. This is where you get uh, the idea of uh, partitive exegesis. So uh, if you've ever heard of part of exegesis, it's basically, particularly Gregory really builds us out of this idea that when the Bible speaks about Jesus in divine terms, it's because he's divine. And when it talks about him in human terms, it's because he's human. And so I want to find it here in 2918, where he has the, uh, the uh, very clear statement. In some, you must predicate the more sublime expressions of God, so the, the divine expressions of the Godhead, of the nature which transcends bodily experiences, and the lowlier ones of compound, of him who because of you was emptied, became incarnate, and to use equally valid language was made man, right? So this is this idea that uh, it builds off of the ineffability in some sense, right? Of the sense that um, in the incarnation, you still have Jesus, the son, uh, the son of God who was fully God, and yet he was made man, he is put on flesh and is truly human. And so you're going to see the times in which he will say, I can forgive sins. I have the authority to uh, give life, these kind of things, right? Uh, when the, I say whatever the father says, these type of things that are clearly divine language, but then he'll turn around and take a nap on a boat, right? Or, uh, you know, or eat bread. And uh, what Gregory wants to do is say, you've got to be careful not to let those overlap because then you start talking about the son in human and creaturely form right. uh, and, and what it means to be human. So if you start, even when we get to a little bit later, Gregory talks about it some here as well, you get to the, the distinction between, um, you know, his uh, doing certain things as a man, doing certain things as God, and then what does it mean for him to be obedient to the father versus being the divine son? You know, that's all wrapped up in there, right? And you've got to be real careful, he says, to distinguish those, partially because it's, it's how you understand the ineffability of God, but you still want to protect the immutability and the ineffability of God, even in the face of Jesus. But then even on beyond that, when it comes to salvation, right, that he is both the God who has the power to save and the man who has transferred that salvation to us. And so he wants to make that that there. And now some of the critique of part of exegesis is uh, that's a really clean and nice way to talk about Jesus. Well, when he does God stuff, he's God. When he does man stuff, he's man. It's not that simple sometimes, right? There's obviously more than that. But that is one way to make sure that you're distinguishing between uh, him as God and him as man in this one person, so that you don't start confusing them, particularly pushing into the Godhead, pushing into the divine nature, things that are proper to humanity, to where you now are weakening the, the divinity or something like that. Yeah, you know, we don't want to be Nestorian in this. Oh, always got to make that. Yeah, you always got to make that caveat there, for sure. It's the one person of Jesus acting according 
to the attributes of each nature. Yeah, and part of exegesis can sound Nestorian very quickly if we're not if we're not careful. But Gregory yeah. was very clearly not a Nestorian or a proto-Nestorian, so that's not what's right. happening. Right. And, and actually, you know, the next section in nineteen, he has this great, this great. Um, well, it's an oration uh, <laughs> section on. I, I would call it a, an example of the extra Calvinisticum. Mm -hmm. uh, this idea where you maintain the full divinity of the Son while he becomes incarnate during the incarnation, which is from AD zero to forever. Yeah. Uh, and so he starts off, he says, he whom presently you scorn was once transcendent over even you. He who is presently human was incomposite. He remained what he was. This is, a, this is a very important quote. He remained what he was. What he was not, he assumed. So in contrast to kind of present canonic Christologies where the son, quote unquote, turns off his divinity, doesn't access it so basically limits himself to the human attributes of jesus gregory maintains the full divinity of the son during the incarnation he remained what he was what he was not he assumed and i actually just want to quote the end of that section because i'm just saying it's beautiful man i want to read this whole thing it's so good uh <laughs> he says he was begotten yet he was already begotten of a woman, and yet she was a virgin. That it was from a woman makes it human, that she was a virgin makes it divine. Hmm. On earth he has no father, but in heaven no mother. All this is part of his Godhead. He was carried in the womb, but acknowledged by a prophet as yet unborn himself, who leaped for joy at the presence of the word, for whose sake he had been created. He was wrapped in swaddling bands, but at the resurrection he unloosed the swaddling bands of the grave. He was laid in a manger, but was extolled by angels, disclosed by a star, and adored by a magi. He was exiled into Egypt, but he banished the Egyptian idols. He had no form or beauty for the Jews, but for David he was fairer than the children of men. And on the mount he shines forth, becoming more luminous than the sun to reveal the further mystery, the future mystery. Yo, as we say in Alabama, that'll preach. <laughs> that dog will hunt. That dog will hunt. Yeah, and then right after that, even in 20, as a man, he was baptized, but he absolved sins as God, right? That just, that back and forth there between he, he is divine, thus this is proper to say about him. He is man, thus this is proper to say about him. And yet it happens in this one person, in this one who was born of a virgin. I just want to read this whole section out loud. Well, that, that's, what our, that's what our reading group is supposed to be already doing. Golly. So. And of course, I've got to mention at the end of 20, that Gregory clearly affirms Christ's descent to the dead. You better just just go ahead. Just go ahead and get it over with so we can uh, move on to the... Yeah. He is brought up to the tree and nailed to it, yet by the tree of life he restores us. I just want to read this whole thing because it's so good. And then what? Yes. He, goes, he goes down to hell and burns in fire forever. Is that what that says right there? He goes down. Oh, he goes uh, down to Haiti. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it's a big negative ghost writer. <laughs> um, he is brought up to the tree and nailed to it, yet by the tree of life he restores us. Yes, he saves even a thief crucified with him. He wraps all the visible world in darkness. He has given vinegar to, vinegar to drink, gall to eat. And who is he? Why, one who turned water into wine, who took away the taste of bitterness, who is all sweetness and desire. He surrenders his life, yet he has power to take it again. Yes, the veil is rent, for things of heaven are being revealed. Rocks split, and dead men have an earlier awakening. He dies, but he vivifies, and by death destroys death. He is buried, yet rises again. He goes down to Hades. Yet he leads souls up, ascends to heaven, and will come to judge quick and dead. 
let's just stop there. Yeah, we could read the whole thing. Okay, that would be that'd be better than our comment, actually. Any of our end comments. Of, end of recording. Go ahead and shut it down. Well, shut we are uh, just we go. are getting we are getting along along pretty uh, we're running out of time pretty quickly here. Do you want to um, do you want to move to Oration Thirty One and talk about the Spirit a little bit? Make sure that we get into his doctrine. Yeah, of spirit. I, I think we probably um, before we jump all the way to Thirty One, uh, we probably need to just walk through a few things about 30 um because in in 29 you know he's taking this ineffability and um analogous language and applying it to the son especially in the incarnation so we get part of exegesis but in in 30 uh we get other aspects of the doctrine of god and also christology but especially as they relate to things like eternal generation yeah, uh, and also the unity of uh, God's will, so that He has one will. I mean, just just to, I'll, I'll say this way first. At the beginning, He starts with Proverbs eight, and He starts off by talking about eternal generation of the Son. In, in doing so, He's saying that eternal generation is the only thing that distinguishes God the Son from God the Father, and that. Uh, the eternal procession of the spirit is the only thing that distinguishes God, the father and God, the son from God, the spirit, mm-hmm. which leads him back to objecting to other ways that you might distinguish between the persons. Okay. Because part of what the eunomians were doing and really any subordinationist were, were doing was that they were trying to posit other ways of affirming the unity of the son and father without affirming oneness of substance. Yeah. And so you would find them saying, well, uh, yes, Father, Son, and Spirit are one, but in the sense of agreement or harmony or oneness of will. This is Kaled yep. uh, Anatolios uh, retrieving Nicaea makes this argument. Whereas uh, the pro-Nicenes, including Gregor Nazianzus, wanted to argue for the oneness of God based on essence. And so Gregory takes pains to object to the idea that the Son has a different will from the Father. Eternal generation doesn't allow him to have a different will from the Father. If he has the same essence, he has the same will, because essence and will, it's simplicity. They're they're the same. So in Oration 30, uh, Section 6, he's dealing with this statement that Jesus learned obedience in Hebrews. Uh, Connected with this general view are the facts that he, quote, learned obedience by the things which he suffered, his, quote, strong crying and tears, the fact that he entreated, that he was heard, and that he was God-fearing. These things are a marvelously constructed drama dealing with us as word. Now listen, as word, he was neither obedient nor disobedient. As word, he was neither disobedient nor obedient. The terms apply to amenable subordinates or inferiors who deserve punishment. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and lay it out there. Uh, That is is a direct statement contrary to eternal relations of authority and submission. In order to have a subordinate will, whatever that means, even if you try to affirm one will and say, oh, well, it's access to the divine will, what Gregory says is that would require you to be in an inferior place. It would require you to be a slave, a servant in his terms. As the word, he was neither obedient nor disobedient. But as, quote, the form of a slave, he comes down to the same level as his fellow slaves. 
Gregory's using partitive exegesis here to say, as God the Word, he doesn't have a separate will. Therefore, he can't obey or disobey. There's one will, the one God. But in the form of a slave, he does obey. That is, in, according to his human nature, via his human will, he obeys. And this, this is part of exegesis. This is also um, a recognition. Again, it, it's, it's taking eternal generation to its logical conclusion. You can't just affirm eternal generation and then say, oh, yeah, the sun still submits. That's, that's nonsensical. It's illogical. Because what eternal generation is saying is that God is one in every possible way aside from the eternal relation, the eternal relations of origin. The eternal relations of origin, when, when, it, when we're talking about the eternal begottenness of the Son, we're saying the Father communicates or, or uh, yeah, communicates the essence of God to God the Son perfectly and without remainder. And that's an eternal act that never starts, never stops. It just is. And the same thing with the eternal procession of the Spirit, communicated from the Father and the Son to the Spirit. The nature of God, the essence of God, is God. Father, Son, and Spirit, in relation to one another, is God. The will of God is God. The attributes of God are God. All of these things are God fully and totally without remainder. God doesn't have parts. You can't put them together like a Lego set and then take him apart where he's got a will over here and a goodness over here and a wrath over here. So to say that somehow you can affirm eternal generation where the son receives the divine essence from the father, which means that just, it just means that the son subsists in the same divine essence as the father, because they are the essence, the relations are the essence. And then to say that he has a distinction in his will from the father, that doesn't make any sense. It's a theological contradiction. Yeah, I think what Gregory does too. <laughs> I was letting you go there. That was good. That's all I got to um, say about that. <laughs> but I think the one thing that Gregory does so helpfully there is the thing you pointed out uh, there at the beginning to sort of set it up is we have a lot of these conversations about the one will or the three wills or the obedience and the authority. And what Gregory says is obedience is not even a category to, to that's not even a category to talk about. He just completely removes it from the conversation altogether. That obedience is something that creatures do to the creator, not that the creator does to anyone. And if the if if you are God, you are subservient to no one, not even yourself, so to speak, right? That, that if you, if the son is God, he can't be subservient to God. Right. And so he just takes that. I, I love that he just sort of dismisses that and takes it out. And of course, he's responding to, as you said, a particular context. Uh, with eunomians and then some some of arianism and these other these other things that have filtered through but yeah fine one will agreed but you're trying to use one will to say something that that's not right you know you're trying to and it's, it's with arius arius is like divine simplicity you're like awesome i love divine simplicity let's do that then he says well because of divine simplicity the sun has to be created and it's like okay no 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 right so that that's where he wants to say if you can have essence you have everything with it right, right? you don't have to part it out like you said in different ways Yep. What he's doing through the whole thing is actually taking scriptural passages that seem to contradict what he's already said in Oration 29, right? So yep. he's, he starts with Proverbs 8, the Lord created me at the beginning of his works. And he says, well, that's actually not talking about, you know, what the subordinationists are saying, yep. but it's talking about eternal generation. Uh, then he goes on in the section that I read to talk about, oh, he learned obedience. Well, that's not talking about him being obedient according to his divinity, but it's actually talking about his obedience according to the form of a slave. 
uh, and then he goes on and, and quotes a number of other passages, including one of the ones that's brought up all the time uh, in these conversations. I think it's here that he does that, which is First Corinthians 15. He gives the kingdom. Yeah, Christ gives the kingdom over to the Father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but he's you know he's dealing with those kinds of passages. Section ten: the Son can do nothing of himself, but only what he sees his Father doing. Yep. Uh, Twelve: Son's coming down from heaven not to do his own will. Uh, no one except the Father knows the last day or hour. And all these sorts of things, and it's just very simple. Like once you have the tools in place to say, okay, the only thing that distinguishes the persons uh, in eternity is eternal relations of origin in the economy. Uh, the son is a distinguished from the father also according to his humanity once you have those things in place it's like oh i i, I can now explain these passages that seem difficult before they're not mm -hmm. actually and that's kind of what gregory says he's like hey if you'd actually just read your bible correctly you'd be fine and that's the thing is these hermeneutical tools that we're talking about partitive exegesis ineffability analogous language those are actually all in the bible like the bible teaches us how to read itself the doctrine of analogous language or the, the tool of analogous language isn't something that's from outside of the Bible, some kind of external philosophy and being brought in to help us. It's actually just, it, it comes from reading the Bible and understanding how to deal with this anthropomorphic language alongside of just propositional statements about who God is. God has, you know, God's nose is long. God doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. Okay, well, how do we relate those two together? Well, I guess this must be metaphorical, right? That's from the Bible itself. Jesus, according to his divinity, was totally and utterly one with God. But when he became obedient, when he took on the form of a servant and became obedient in time, in other words, that's Philippians 2. Ineffability is all over the place in the Bible where it says, hey, God is God and you're not and you can't ever fully understand him. I mean, this, these are things that are taught in Scripture. It's not like the fourth century folks were just adopting Hellenism and whatever and blah, blah, blah. No, they're just reading Scripture carefully. And it's not as though people today who are defending classical conceptions of the doctrine of God are, are just, uh, you know, sort of retrieving this stuff without serious reflection on the philosophical questions involved, or that they're doing so without reference to Scripture. Rather, Scripture teaches us how to read itself. Pay attention to how Scripture teaches us how to read. This is what you get. Mm -hmm. It's a totally different scenario. <laughs> All right, well, let's move to let's move to Oration Thirty One. I'm glad you did stop at thirty. That was a that was a good idea, especially for that uh, for that sermon that you just preached. A sermon or rant, you know, somewhere in between. But I think it was right. It's pretty it much right. the same thing for me. Yeah. So in thirty one eight, one of the things to note about Gregory, you've got the Nicene Creed in three twenty five. Alexander and these others who are involved in the Nicene Creed are particularly responding to Arius and Eusebius and a couple of others about their subordination of the sun, saying the sun is created, et cetera, right? The Nicene Creed says, uh, we believe in you know, God the Father, yeah, 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 and all the stuff about Jesus, and then, and the Holy Spirit, and then move on. So I always tell my students, there's this you know, robust doctrine of Holy Spirit in the Nicene Creed. Problem is there's not, right? And so what happens over basically between 325 and 381 is this, uh, there's still Christological conversations, obviously, but then you've got these Holy Spirit conversations you have to have with the Pneumatomachians and others. Gregory, in particular, and that was a real smooth pronunciation context of the sentence. Like he didn't even skip a beat. 
you're just like on pneumatomachians yeah yeah i have my students doing presentations on defeating different uh, christological and pneumatological heresies and i tell them i'm taking it's going to be a b automatically if you can't say pneumatomachian so i have to be able to say it so that i can uh yeah i typically say new pneumatomachians like i'm putting the emphasis on the second that might be right i don't know number three but i've got a smooth one whatever it is i just it happens it was smooth i was impressed Appreciate that. Thanks. Uh, it's not very often you compliment me, Matthew. So I just well, you don't take... deserve it often. So I gotta say it when you do. <laughs> All right, so anyway, so so you've got the the rise of these uh, Holy Spirit heresies. Gregory, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil, particularly the Cappadocians, do a lot of work in this area. Uh, Athanasius does as well, particularly his letters to Serapion. But Gregory uh, is largely considered to be the first, at least in the extant letters that we have of actually talking about the procession of the Holy Spirit. And he actually does that in Oration 25, which is not in this set, but you can go uh, see that as well, where he actually says the Spirit proceeds. And of course, this is biblical language, but he he actually starts tying it together in this economy of God. And then if you look at, um, or actually, the, you know, the eternal relations of origin, and then you get to uh, 31.8, and he says, uh, as a response to somebody who denies the divinity of the Spirit, he says, I take it that you have not composed a new New Testament. I love that. <laughs> and on the strength of it, remove the phrase, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, which is from uh, the Gospel of John, of course. Insofar as he proceeds from the Father, he is no creature. Inasmuch as he is not begotten, he is no son. And to the extent that procession is the mean between ingeneracy and generacy, right, unbegotten and begotten, he is God, right? So, so here he's saying it's the same logic the logic about Jesus being divine and about the word being divine, that if he is from the life of God, if he comes from, proceeds from, and is a complete salvation, it does all the work that God does. And Nyssa will particularly pick up on the idea of completing salvation and how he completes all the work of God. But Gregory talks about that too. And he says, if that is the case, then he must be God. We must be able to, if we say these things about Jesus, we must say these things about the spirit. Because yep. he who proceeds from the Father shares in the divine life and the divine substance. And so I think that's a really, I mean, just a very clear, uh, you know, did you write a New Testament? Because it says it right here in the New Testament. And again, you're doing theological uh, logic at some level. Yep. I, lo- I love how he just says, and this is, this is the key, right? Here's all the things we say about the Son. If you grant those things to be true, you must also say them about the Spirit. Because the Spirit does things only God can do. The Spirit does things, uh, comes from the Father, uh, returns to the Father, points us to the Father, adopts us as sons, et cetera, et cetera. If that's true of of the Spirit, he must be God. And so he pulls in that procession language there, the divine language, uh, in a way that that we take for granted now, but was a a pretty uh, unique, not the right word, but an important argument, particularly in leading up to uh, Constantinople, sort of actually expanding a little bit more on what it means for the spirit to be God. And obviously the conversations went beyond Constantinople, but. You know, one of the things that I want my students to see when I walk them through this text in particular, I tell them that for the son and the spirit, right? So he deals with the son first and then he goes and applies these same arguments to the spirit, which is exactly right. Uh, What we see is that the son and the father and then the spirit and the son, the son and the father, have the same attributes they do the same actions they carry out the same actions right so attributes that only god has son and father share actions that only god does son and the father do them appellations or names 
that only the father only god has the father and son both are called those names and then adoration that only god receives the son and the spirit or the son and the father both uh receive that same adoration and so you know the question is if if father and son are both god in that they have the same attributes they perform the same actions they're called the same appellations and they receive the same adoration then how are they distinguished well, the only way that they're distinguished in the Bible and the only way that you can hold those four things together is through the eternal relations of origin. Mm-hmm. And then you take that same kind of argument and you see that it's also applicable to the spirit and the only distinguishing characteristic per, or, uh, personal property, I should say, of the spirit is that he proceeds from the father and the son. Now, that's Trinitarian logic. That's the kind of logic that the pro-Nicenes were using. Um, and it's scriptural. I mean, I can't say enough that, that that's a scriptural, biblical argument. It's, it's how to understand scripture holistically, canonically, intertextually, in a way that holds all things together in scripture at the same time, affirming that God is one God in three persons by virtue of his eternal relations of origin. And he finishes in 31.9 here. Uh, he says, the aim here is to safeguard the distinctiveness of the three hypostases or the three persons within the single nature and quality of the Godhead, right? Because, because they are all, like you said, doing things God does, using the same titles, actions, etc. We have to protect that unity of God. I always tell my students, Deuteronomy 6, the Lord is one, is not not true now that Jesus and the Spirit have come. Right? The Lord is one. We have to hold on to that. That's not wrong. He says we want to, we want to safeguard that. So he says, the son is not the father, there is one father, yet the son is whatever the father is. The spirit is not son because he is from God, there is only one only begotten, yet whatever the son is, the spirit is. The three are a single whole in their Godhead, and a single whole is three in personalities or in persons. Thus, he says, there will be no Sabellian one, so no modalism that, that, that there's just different faces of God, not different persons, and no three to be mischievously divided by our contemporaries. So you notice when he uses this, I bring that up to to say too, when he brings up this language of mischievousness, or surely you've not written a new New Testament, he's obviously being somewhat sarcastic and biting. But again, notice how he, he attributes theological error to mischievousness, to pride, that you think that you know better than God, because you have said more than his than his word has said. And so again, we come all the way back to the beginning of this idea of, of theolog- theological humility and theologians being humble and having that character. Uh, we just sort of, I, th- I think we default sometimes to, as long as he's a nice guy, who cares what he teaches or says? To, to an extent, right? As long as it's our friends, because everybody in our circles says, Joel Osteen seems like a really sweet guy, but he's a heretic. But when they start coming, it starts coming closer, starts being your friends, people you may have gone to seminary with, served with. I'm not saying you call them all satanic, but there should be a sense in which we say, hey, if you're starting to error, they're, they're like for your soul, for the sake of your calling, for the sake of your ministry, for the sake of your authority as a teacher, like take this seriously. Right. And, and you need to be able to defend the theological position that you have rigorously, biblically, obviously, primarily, and then theologically, as you said. And if you can't do that, maybe you need to step out of that and uh, reconsider right and, and i think we're just and, and again i'm not i'm not saying that we should just start firing people or casting people out of churches or church disciplining everybody who doesn't agree with us but but i think gregory's point is true right that 
part of being the theologian is being humble. And uh, part of the job actually of the other bishops, which is why creeds and councils happen, the other leaders and teachers, it is also their responsibility to preach truth, to teach truth, and to hold each other accountable to what they teach. And I don't think we do that enough, and I don't know what it all looks like, but anytime that anybody wants to have a theological disagreement, it's, okay, you guys are a bunch of meanies, leave me alone. And Gregory's saying, no, actually, it's the exact opposite. Uh, You can be a jerk about it for sure. Like you yep. can be a meanie about it, but ultimately, uh, you, your, your job is to preach the truth of God. Your, your job is to take the text seriously. And right. if you take the text seriously, you should basically agree with this or else you've got serious problems. And if you don't recant, uh, you're prideful, right? If everybody tells you that you're wrong and you still say you're the only one left who is correct, or you and two of your friends, or you and your one, you know, uh, buddy, like you've got to take a step back and say, okay, Maybe I'm the one. So I use this analogy or this illustration with students. I always tell them, I tell the students, let's say that, uh, you know, Susie Cedarville, uh, she, uh, which is where I teach, Susie Cedarville uh, meets this really nice guy, right? Sam Cedarville. And they date or they court, you know, whatever. And uh, they fall in love. <laughs> and, uh, and Susie Cedarville takes him home to meet her parents. And she says, here's Sam Cedarville. He's a sweet guy. He loves Jesus. He's the best. And they spend the weekend getting to know him. And both of her parents say, I'm not really sure about this guy. And she's like, okay, well, my parents can be protective, you know. So I'm going to introduce him to the, the five women who would be my bridesmaids. Says, hey, friends, I trust your biblical wisdom. You're all Christians. You're my best friends. What do you think about Sam? And all of them say, I don't know. There's just something about Sam. Uh, I think you're blinded by your love here a little bit. I think you're blinded by uh, what you want to be true about him. I'm not really sure. Like, you know what? Fine. You girls are all immature. You're jealous because I'm getting married and you're not, you know, I'm gonna take you to my pastor. You go to the pastor and he says, sorry, Susie Cedarville. I think there's something going on with Sam. You've got the basically eight most important people in your life who you trust to be biblically sound and wise telling you that you're wrong. If you want to still go marry him, that's your choice. But if everybody that you trust and everybody around you says there's something wrong here, you might take a step back and say, what am I missing? Mm-hmm. And I think uh, at the end of my rant here, I think theologically speaking, uh, if you're going to disagree with 2000 years of church history and disagree with basically everybody around you, um, maybe you're not always reforming. Uh, maybe you're just an error and not humble enough to admit it. And I think that's what Gregory would say too. Hey, okay. I'm done. How, how many, how many of our uh, Presbyterian friends are going to tweet us after this and go, yeah, Brandon, apply that logic to baptism. That's <laughs> true. Well, you know, there's, there's the old saying that Luther would, would drown all of us, you know. So, uh, you know, we're all Protestants, but Luther wouldn't have any of us in his church. So well, that's what it does. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> on that note, let me, uh, let me cro- close us with the grace. And if you're listening or watching, you can say it with us. This is from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.